Hello and welcome to Frisbee's Bulls and Bears with me, Dominic Frisbee. A reminder that you can subscribe to the show by clicking on the subscribe via email button on the left-hand side of your screen and then every time I upload a new show you will be notified in your inbox. Now it's said that there's a there's a process that an idea goes through before it becomes mainstream. It starts off in the in the left field uh, among a few fringe thinkers, and then gradually the intellectual community adopt it before it moves into the mainstream arena. Now. Many of my listeners and, and, and other people have felt that monetary reform is one of the key issues at the heart of this uh, financial crisis. And yet, as an idea, it's been very much on the fringe. It's never managed to find its way into the spotlight. Um, and then suddenly, uh, on BBC Radio 4 this week, on Monday, um, Andrew Marr in- interviewed Detlev Schlichter, whose book Paper Money Collapse, The Folly of Elastic Money and the Coming Monetary Breakdown, very much echoes the thinking of many uh, pro-gold thinkers that listen to this show and, and, um, and others like it. And so uh, I'm not sure that BBC Radio 4 programmes can be heard outside of the UK and so for those listeners um, that are outside of the UK, I-, I thought it was a very, very interesting conversation and, um, and a landmark in a way for, for those who want to see gold used as money once again, because it, it, it shows the, the gradual transformation of these ideas, as I say, from fringe to mainstream. It's, it's, a, it's a bit of a chapter. So as a result, I'm posting that interview in today's show and um, it's 45 minutes, well worth listening to. I hope you enjoy it, and thanks very much to BBC Radio 4. Thank you for downloading the Start the Week podcast from BBC Radio 4. For more information, go to bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. Hello. The future of money, and thus of banking, and indeed of the economy. That is our modest and limited theme today. Detlef Schlichter is a radical economist who argues that paper money, well, all money, not backed by gold or another commodity, is the central cause of a breakdown we have barely begun to experience. Angela Knight of the British Bankers Association has possibly the easiest job in the country defending bankers and banking. Maurice Glassman, Lord Glassman, who hit the headlines after being mildly disobliging about his one-time protégé, Ed Miliband, wants to see a radical rebalancing of the economy, ending our heavy reliance on finance capitalism. And we're going to begin today with Philip Coggan of The Economist, whose lucid analysis of the current crisis, Paper Promises, argues that we have no hope of understanding it until we grasp some simple truths about money. And I suppose the simplest truth, Philip, would be that money has to be two very, very different things at the same time. Absolutely, Andrew. Every day we do something marvellous, which is we hand over bits of paper or we tap keys into a machine and we get real goods and services as, as in exchange for that. Um, and we don't really think about it, but m- those, that role of money is being at the heart of many of the big political and economic crises in history. So we have two functions it, it, it's for the it. medium. That's the medium of exactly. exchange. So if we want to buy things, then we want to uh, have as much money as possible. I want to go back and raid my kid's Monopoly set and hand over all those notes there. So that makes trade easier. But if we want to uh, have savings, we don't want to spend all our money immediately. We get it. We want to be, be able to buy the same amount of goods next year or the year after that, we need money to be a store of value. So we have that medium of exchange, a store of value, one where there's always pressure to create more money, the other where there's pressure to limit the supply of money. And if you think about it, history is a battle between these two functions. With the creditors, they want the supply of money to be restricted 
because they've got money and they, they and need they want to, to hold on to its value exactly whereas debtors they want the supply of money to be expanded and we're seeing exactly that same battle being fought out today and we're going to come on to paper money as paper money in in a little while with debtlev but this is um there's a long history to this which you tell in this book i mean it goes back to um the chinese at the time of the mongols and it goes back famously to the french revolution Yes, absolutely. There have been various experiments in history where people have tried to expand the supply of money to expand the economy. And in the short term, it tends to work. In the long term, it can run into trouble if you expand the supply of money too fast. And governments are the key element here. It's usually the government that's the biggest debtor in an economy. And so the governments have every incentive to try and expand the value of money. So go back to Roman emperors. They would struggle to pay their troops. And if you failed to pay your troops, you'd be an ex-Roman emperor pretty quickly. So what they would do is they'd take their silver coins or gold coins, melt them down, add some copper, and then hand them out to their troops. So they make the same amount of money go uh, further away. Henry VIII was known as Old Copper Nose because if you rubbed your coins long enough, the silver coating on the top disappeared and you saw the <laughs> copper underneath. Yeah. So governments have always done that. And, of course, now we have governments which are struggling to pay their debts, and they are getting the central bank to expand the amount of money uh, as a way of helping them pay their debts. So if we come back um, one stage, um, we uh, we see that the system works so long as everybody believes that the government involved is able to raise taxes, is able to uh, square the books and so on. But as soon as people cease believing in the government, we're into terrible trouble. And that would be the case, for instance, with Greece and with so, so many of the European governments at the moment. Exactly. Greece doesn't meet the sort of functions of a state, which is it can't raise money from outsiders at a decent rate. So it has to supply, uh, depend on subsidies from outside, from Germany or whatever. Um, and you're absolutely right. All our money is in some form a claim on the state because either it's created by the state, so the notes that we have that the government stands behind, or it's created by the banks. And we've seen in the last few years that we, the banks have the government standing behind them. If the banks get into trouble, governments will always step in to rescue the banks. So the credibility of the banks depends on the credibility of their home government. And again, if you have countries where the banking system collapses, like, say, Iceland uh, or indeed Ireland, then the financial stability of the government disappears as well. Now, the, the obvious parallel to where we are now, I would have thought, would be the 1930s. Um, but even prior to the 1930s, this same argument was between creditors and debtors was fought out in the United States. Absolutely. There's this William Jennings Bryan was his character, who was the Barack Obama of the late 19th century, a fantastic orator, a senator from a Midwest state, Nebraska, a Democrat. And he ran on expanding the money supply to try and help out farmers. Farmers were the debtors of his day. And he had this speech which said, you shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. So he was in favour of real economy, in this case, farming and, and industrial workers and against the false economy of Wall Street and the bankers. Exactly. And the weird thing is, Everything's flipped around. So the people he uh, ran on behalf of are the same people that vote for the Tea Party now. And the Wall Street people who wanted money to be sound, as they thought about that restriction supply, now back the idea of expanding the money supply. Why? To, Why has that reversal happened? Well, the Wall Street people uh, have come because the last 40 years we've had this no constraints on the creation of money. And it's all been used to buy assets. So we've had this series of bubbles in which borrowed money has been used to buy houses, shares, whatever. Uh, and every time, uh, the result of that has been the finance sector has expanded very rapidly. So Wall Street now depends on the central bank to kind of prop up asset mar markets and keep 
prices high. They don't want to see a collapse. Mm. But the people in the Midwest, they're very suspicious They're too of steeped in blood, it might be said. It's tedious to go back. They have to keep Ex- moving, moving forward. Exactly. Can I, can I ask a sort of um, a, a simple question, which is, from your perspective, looking through the, 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 the lens of, of money, um, how much of the, the crisis that is hitting Western Europe and the United States is simply the fact that this part of the world has failed to produce enough real value um, over the last 20 years and has consumed too much? And we're seeing the unwinding of that via the financial system. Yeah, we've created more claims on wealth than we've created wealth itself. That's the problem. Mm. And that's fine when you've got a rapidly expanding economy. It's kind of like a pyramid scheme. But our problem is, in the developed world, we've now reached a stage where populations are starting to uh, be stagnant or shrink. So we've not got this expanding pool of people to sell assets onto. Uh, And, of course, we're burdened with this debt from before. So... In a way, taking on debt is an expression of confidence that the income of the debtor or the asset that the debtor buys will grow so that they can repay the price. That confidence is disappearing now. And you, you have a variety of futures which might come, come out. But Japan is a classic example. It had these bubbles. It's had 20 years since then with um, a stagnant economy and with uh, asset prices being 40 to 50 percent below what they were 20 years ago. So there isn't a clever technical fix. There's nothing that can be done to the money supply that will help us out in any way. We're not going to pay these debts back either by we're going to default on them practically or we will have inflation, as debt level will talk about, and we will eliminate the debts that way. So one way or another, um, something negative is going to happen to try and get rid of this mm. debt burden. Angela Knight, in your world of, of, of bankers, I mean, are these the kind of things that people talk about, um, you know, late at night over a whiskey? Is, is, is this the fear underlying the system? Well, late at night over a whiskey, which I don't drink. <laughs> the, if you did the, drink. Yeah, the, 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 the issues actually at the moment tend to be a little bit more pressing. The, the things that are being discussed are, uh, are not uh, so much those which uh, Philip has just uh, laid out, however interesting and important they may be. Right. But it's more about tomorrow, the next day, the next week, and the Eurozone. I mean, that really is dealing with the early crisis, which is still with us of the Eurozone, uh, is the big issue, I think, at the moment. Detlef, we're going to come on to um, your views on paper money more generally. But listening to Philip there, do you, do you say, looking back at history... Um, you've had these experiments with paper money and they would always end the same way. Is that your... Uh, absolutely. I, I, think, I think it's correct that uh, paper money systems have been tried, obviously, for about 1,000 years. The Chinese in the 11th century or 10th century had the first complete paper money systems where money was no longer linked to any kind of commodity and was just irredeemable pieces of paper issued by the government. We have to remember all paper money systems are government state money systems. You know, we'd have ne- it's never been a completely private paper money system. So they're all creatures of politics. Mm. Uh, historically, they've all been implemented to fund the state. And historically, that has been even, you know, openly declared gold. Uh, I mean, Britain went off the gold standard practically in 1797 to fund the war against France. Though just to jump in and and, and coming back to Philip's book, I mean, there are all sorts of things that become in effect money. Air miles, for instance, could be regarded as a form of money. 
not backed by the state. Well, I, I was a bit, but they're, they're very limited media of exchange because you, 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 okay. you know, they will not be accepted across the okay. uh, entire economy. Uh, now, all paper money systems in in history have failed, and they they fail in one of two ways. So either the, we go back to a commodity money system, as Britain has done a couple of times in its history, or you end up in hyperinflation and currency collapse. Uh, I think uh, coming back to the situation about the debtor and the creditor, we have to remember one thing because I'm a bit concerned that it sounds a little bit like there's a inherent conflict between creditor and debtor. I don't think that's necessarily the case because we have to first think that the two of them uh, are, join a contract voluntarily because they both expect to benefit from one having the extra money, lending it out to another person, mm. and then you know that person needs money and is willing to pay interest on it. Uh, and I think what both of them would be interested is to have a, a, a means of money to, to uh, honor that contract over they time can, that is stable trust, and they can, can rely on and they can trust. Philip, yeah. Well, these systems tend to break down uh, when the debtors simply can't repay. So in the 1930s, on the gold standard, it, it was imposing such austerity on democratic electorates that governments just gave up. And similarly, this is what the problem in the EU, that we've seen countries which have tied the value of their money to that of Germany, and they just can't cope with the pressure. And we see in Greece, although they, they're about to default, but they've had strike after strike after strike. And I, I would, you could flip Detlev's analysis around and say, well, we did all ha always have gold and silver currency systems, and they've all been abandoned. Um, and why is that? It's because governments uh, find it impossible to s require the sacrifices out of the voters to keep money at a fixed value. They just, voters won't stand for it over the medium term. And you, you would know as a historian, in 1931, the Labour government fell by trying, to, by refusing to impose a kind of a cuts in unemployment benefit that the bankers demanded. We're going to come on to the real meat of this argument in just a moment. But before we do that, I'd like to bring in uh, Maurice Glassman, because this notion that behind all these questions of money and inflation is trust in government is very interesting. In the end, all of these things are political questions, aren't they? Well, um, they are. I mean, there's a very good conversation to be had, I hope, in a, in a few minutes about the, the failure of, of gold as well and the necessity of credit for, for the substantive economy. I mean, what's going on with William Jennings Bryant, what's going on um, now, is that um, capitalism, which I think has suddenly become quite fashionable on the political agenda, um, capital requires maximum return on its investment and it requires um, an exploitation of human beings and, the, and their environment and short-term returns, whereas the substantive economy... Um, requires a much more patient form of return, a much more stable long-term um, relationship. So what I think um, Detlev is, is ignoring here is the, is the imbalance of power between the creditor and the debtor. And, and what, what happened, and this has been going back to Roman Athens, is, is that the centralisation of ownership by the wealthy, by the senators in Rome, that's what happened in Athens. The Catiline conspiracy came up to try to protect the status of political citizens from basically becoming impoverished. So to say that this is all political, I think that what's happened is there's been a very forced division between the economic system and the political system in recent times. And what's vital, and this is the lesson I hope we come to about the German economy, is that status and democracy has been embedded within the economic system, and that has led to much more apply the same, relationships. The same values to the economic system as you're applying to it. Well, I, I do want to come back to that, but let's come on to, um, to, to, to Detlev and... Um, I mean, you've called your book Paper Money Collapse, The Folly of Elastic Money and the Coming of Monetary Breakdown, which is pretty apocalyptic. It's a John Martin painting in words. Um, let's um, focus on the central contention is that unless 
money is based on a limited um, and uh, reliably understood commodity, which means something mineral, probably, and, and because it's, it's relatively, it, it's easy to test its purity, and its limited gold is an obvious example of that. Unless it's based on that, uh, politicians will always produce inflation because of the pressures upon them. That's central to your argument, is that right? I think that's correct. I think that's certainly been the historic experience. As I said before, all paper money systems ultimately led to higher inflation and, and currency collapse. P- paper money systems are being introduced to allow the government or the central bank under government control to constantly expand the supply of money. And as I said, historically, the main reason for that has been to fund the government, and that has been the declared goal. Obviously, today, it's slightly different. Today, it's more the idea of stimulating the economy and allowing the economy to grow you know, mm. faster. And is, is there any, in your view, a theoretical distinction at all between paper money and digital money? I mean, you know, very few of us see much of the money that we uh, earn or um, possess. Yes. It's, uh, just, it's just bits. I, I'm glad you raised that point because whenever I speak about paper money collapse or uh, return to gold-based monetary systems, a lot of people immediately think that they would have to give up their credit cards or can no longer pay on the Internet. And nobody is suggesting that we go back to a system where we walk around with little sacks of gold coins and silver coins. In fact, if we went back to a gold standard today, I think for most of people in terms of how they pay and how they go about their daily you know, spending patterns, not much would change because the key question is not, uh, most of that is payment technology, you know, using a credit card. The, the key question is how much money is there available for the economy to function? And that supply of money, is that fairly fixed and, and is it inherently limited or is it constantly expanding? And, and just to, so people can envisage this, um, you know, on, I'm, not, I'm not sure if banknotes still have it where it says, I promise to pay the pair, bearer on demand the sum of £20. That means £20 in gold. Um, if, you, if we took along our, our notes and we went to the Bank of England, um, what proportion of the money that's um, circulating around is actually sitting there in gold and could be handed back. Well, and now that, that, that statement, is, oh, there's, there's a tiny fraction. I mean, the, the Bank of England sold most of the 1%, something like that, less than 1%? Yeah. Well, I think in the, in, the, in, in the United States, it's probably, uh, I think it's probably a quarter of M1 is probably still backed by gold. But it's, it's, and and it's, it's only about 5%, I think, of, of the money supply M2 in the United States would still be backed by gold. I, I, I assume in the UK, in Britain, it would even be less. But, but uh, remember that if you go back to the Bank of England and hand that piece of paper over, they give you a new piece of paper. Uh, you know, this is irredeemable paper money. This statement doesn't mean anything, but it comes back for it's it's an circular. echo. Uh, yeah, it's an echo of gold standard uh, uh, times. And that's also why we have to understand that the government does not directly, there is no promise behind the, the money that the state issues. So if, if, we, if in, a, in a parallel world, we went back to gold or gold and silver backed money, um, what in practice would happen? What would happen to the role of states and governments? Well, you could envision uh, in, a, in a gold-based system, definitely the role of the state would be much more limited in finance and in money. And you could even envision a world, and that's what I would advocate, where the state is completely removed from finance and banking. And, and that would be an environment in which banks can actually be, again, you know, free enterprises and capitalist companies. I mean, other companies in, in, in a capitalist system obviously always operate under the threat of you know, making losses and going bankrupt. And we have to remember that that is a very important a point for us as consumers because by 
where we spend our money and how we spend our money. We control what is getting being produced mm. in the capitalist economy. We, we, we send signals constantly to the entrepreneurs and the corporations out there. Uh, that doesn't really work in banking anymore because banks deal in money, which is provided by the, by the, by the central bank. The central bank has a goal to constantly create inflation, which means to constantly expand the supply of money, which means we can never allow money, the money supply to shrink. That's why we can never allow, if we stick to the goal of constant inflation, we can never allow the banking system so, to shrink, which is why we need to bail them out and make sure that they constantly grow. But how can you possibly get from where we are to where you would like to be? It has been done in the past, as I said, uh, you know, when there were uh, many examples and a couple of them in Britain, in British history, where there was a decision to go back to gold. Uh, obviously, the moment you stop, stop printing money, uh, the market will then set interest rates again, not your central bank. And you will not continue to bail out all the banks by, you know, quantitative easing and zero interest rates and all those means. So interest rates go shooting up uh, in, the, in the situation we're in now. Yeah, I think uh, the interest rates would begin to reflect the uh, true available pool of savings. We have to remember one thing in all this discussion about how great it is to have more money and low interest rates. We forget that this is completely removed from savings anymore. In a market economy, it's essential that savings and, and investment get coordinated by interest rates. But in a paper money system, we constantly lower interest rates artificially by, by constantly injecting more money into the system. We encourage borrowing. We encourage debt accumulation. The problem that we have so much debt because we want money going back to what where we started as the medium of exchange more than the store of value at the moment that's what the the political system says um philip coggan is it can you think of any way that we could get from where we are now to um debt left's world i think it's possible but pretty unlikely i mean governments would have to give up their value to create give out their ability to create money which are be very unwilling to do so and you know if you go back to say what was churchill's um great regret in life he did go back to the gold sand in 1925 and everybody picked on him for the rest of his life for doing it that was seen as a great mistake um but it could arise as detlev says from complete collapse of the system. So if we have seen in Zimbabwe in recent years, for example, uh, Zimbabwe dollars become completely useless, in, um, toilet paper, the equivalent of. And so if we get that in far... Fact, there then, had to be signs put up in the yeah. toilet saying you may not use the currency as toilet paper. Exactly. Mm. So if we get that far, then in those circumstances, then the only alternative would be to reintroduce money. And in Germany in the 1920s, they got that far and then they had to completely rebase the currency. So it's not a sort of imminent in the next you know, two or three years, I don't think. We might hope, but Detlef's <laughs> nodding his head vigorously. Well, I, 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 think, I think you're right. I think it's unlikely that politicians will take that decision because we now know, I mean, we have to remember, we had 40 years now, and for the first time in human history, we had 40 years where, of a global paper money system. Since Nixon took uh, the dollar off gold in 1971, for the first time ever, the entire world is on a complete paper standard. Around the world, everybody can print, all the central banks can print as much money as they like. Over those 40 years, we had a unprecedented accumulation of debt and which and and around the world we have the same problems now we have overextended banks weak banks whether it's japan the united states or europe we have uh, these asset bubbles and we have a huge accumulation of debt so now we created after 40 years of constant money expansion being created created so many mm. imbalances if we now go back to hard money like commodity money we will have a, a a very sharp correction in the system of recession. And because politically we don't want this, or politicians mm. don't want this, I think that we will print more money. I think that only means that we have a, have a worse outcome in the future. Okay, well let me bring in Angela Knight now, Chief Executive of the British Bankers Association. Um, Angela, what about the, the central charge that the banking system um, is so 
close to the political system, so keen to to help the politicians out of their problems, that banking is failing savers, failing um, in its kind of historic role of acting as a, a reliable source of value that can be depended upon by people. Well, I think that there has been some extraordinary changes over this, as, as has been said by both Philip and Detlef over this last you know, 40, 50 years. And so there has been a, a, a sea change as a consequence on the role of uh, banking mm-hmm. and the role of central banks. And the question, therefore, I think is is more that we are where we are now and the position in which uh, UK, other countries globally, we have got to has not just been as a consequence of one uh, political party, one uh, country, uh, one uh, group of politicians, some banks. It has been an accepted... a worldwide boom and a political... It's been an an accepted set of changes and accepted norms. And that has been something that has been uh, bought into by governments, uh, by an industry, by central banks, by regulators. And I think the, the, the vital question as well now is how do we get back to something which provides stability, provides confidence, and in Detlef's world, and I think um, Philip as well, uh, where banks can fail if they make mistakes, because I agree that you can't have a protected sector. What you've got to have is you've got to have a sector which operates safely, which underpins an economy, which provides finance people want and businesses want and trade want. But if it does get into serious difficulty, then a bank can actually unwind itself without having that economic impact, which uh, still so, remains as a threat in some So how countries. does that happen? Because I, I was talking to, to um, somebody who's in business, and uh, he recalled watching those television pictures of Northern Rock and people yes. queuing up outside, and somebody said to him, what does this mean? And he said, Is it, my instant reaction was, it means a recession, and it probably means a depression too. Once a, once a bank like that goes, we're in a downward spiral. I think that the, the, the Northern Rock was a, a very visible and very frightening uh, episode of what happens when a bank gets into difficulty. But in and a of sense, you're, saying, that you're saying we have to be in a world where there are more Northern Rocks if banks can fail. I think there's two aspects. First, how do you operate with a greater degree of stability, greater degree of security, and a, and a greater confidence between the, that the bank and the customer? That's number one. And number two is, if a failure occurs, then how do you unwind that bank in a manner which doesn't mm. require permanent involvement of the, the taxpayer? And that is something which the UK has actually bought as a concept. I don't see that it's necessarily reflected in a number of other countries, so I think the US is, is more there as well. And it'll take some time to get to the point at which we have what are called mm. you know, recovery and resolution plans and all the procedures in place. But nevertheless, it is a part of a proper operating uh, capitalist society that you have industries that provide, that industries that can grow, that, that give mm. the customer in whatever form they may be, the goods and services they want. But if, if, if they get yeah. into difficulty, can't expect the taxpayer to come in to and stand behind them. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the world and the transformation um, that Philip and Detlef uh, laid out in the first part of this conversation, um, in human terms, has meant that the notion of the banker um, certainly in my lifetime, has gone from being somebody who was essentially boring yes. and trustworthy, you know, safe as a banker, as it were, to somebody who's regarded as a dodgy casino operator. And that must have an enormous effect, sort of psychologically, in a lot of your members. 
How much soul-searching is there going on sort of fundamentally about what banking is for, what banking is about, and how you can get back to being dull? Yes. Well, the simple answer is to say a lot of soul-searching. Mm. Um, there's half a million people working in the banking industry in this country. We have a large domestic and a large international banking sector, both operating out of the UK. And it's a country, to this day, we get a lot of benefits uh, from that. Um, the, the, the point that you make about the fundamental change in culture, the need to get on doing your knitting mm. well, the requirement to build back trust is well understood. But it is going to take a long time. And when I come back to that number, that 500 plus thousand of individuals operating in the industry, they're operating all across the country. You go into your branches you, uh, every day and you see bankers, you see people who, who you trust. So there's a big well of trust still there. Don't, but the don't worry, Will. There are, there are unglamorous the, bankers too. Absolutely. Yeah. The industry is overshadowed, is overshadowed by the problems that it's had. But the problems were only in a few banks and the problems there were, in many respects, centred in a few people. This sudden rise to prominence of bankers that you talked about is a very much a creation of the last 30, 40 years. It, as you say, it was a boring job, and it's because credit has been allowed to expand, because money flows across borders uh, all the time, because mm. money's been used to prop up the asset market. Central bankers have cut interest rates the moment the market's wobbled. So basically, there's been this wonderful tailwind behind the banking sector where they've got bigger and bigger in the economy. And that didn't exist up until about 1980 because under the system that came out of the Second World War, you, you couldn't take money overseas. It used to be that you couldn't take more than £50 pounds overseas if you were a holiday maker and you were a Briton. Um, and you couldn't sort of buy and sell shares all around the world. So, uh, again, it's it, this whole change in the nature of banking. You've got industries like hedge funds and private equity, which didn't exist 40 or 50 years ago. They're all creatures of this modern system. And if you're going to say, well, the modern system is wrong, then the actual adverse impact on people's lives would, would be huge. I mean, the numbers are extraordinary. You know, 50,000 people visit ATMs, take cash out of the wall machine um, every 10 minutes. You know, every 10 minutes, you've got hundreds of thousands of, of payments go through the system. People expect to be able to use their debit card in different countries of the world. They don't expect to have money constrained, you know, in a, to a certain extent in respect of, you know, reasonableness in their eyes. But reasonableness in, in their eyes is an important aspect of it. And if you start to bring in some of those constraints and to pick up Detlef's point, if you go back to something, if we call it the gold standard or what, do you go back to something like that? The disruption is going to be so high. How would you manage that disruption in a people's lives, but also be in a democracy? Because, you know, you've got the political process as part of it as well. Uh, Yeah, I think the uh, I think. A gold standard would work perfectly well in a modern economy as well, an international and open economy as well. Uh, When I talk about the adjustment problems, I'm just talking about the liquidation of the accumulated imbalances that we had after 40 years of paper money, the excess debt levels. We know there's too much debt out there. All this debt will not be repaid. Some of these borrowers will default, and this has to be written down. And that's the adjustment I speak about when we go back from elastic paper money back to some sort of hard gold-based system. That's an adjustment problem. Once you've been and through that, the economy will work very well. I even think that gold is a much more international form of money than any paper money. Please remember that a paper money system is always national money. The money is all only applies to the territory of the state that issues the money. Um, 
if you look at the, to, uh, the classical gold standard between 1881 and 1914, this was the first period of globalization. This was the entire world, was the entire industrialized world used gold as money. And money balances were, sh were moving from one country to another in the same way as they're moved today. I don't know, between Bristol and Manchester, and we don't record these movements anymore because they happen within one currency area. Money could move from uh, the UK to the United so States. It would not have doable. to be exchanged. Eminently doable. Maurice Glassman. Um, well, let's let's park some of that to one side because mm -hmm. I want to come back to the, the the quote real economy, and we take Angela's point that there's an awful lot of people who are working in banking who are working in the real economy. Um, but nonetheless, one of the, it seems to be one of the the good things that's happened as a result of the the crisis and the crash is that a world finance that the rest of us were taught we could never understand it was far too complicated for our poor is as it were being opened up. Um, and democratised, and we can actually at least discuss what's happened in it. Um, where would you be starting from um, if, you, if you were beginning what you want to see, which is the rebalancing of this economy? Well, I, I'd begin with a, with a fundamental distinction between, first of all, um, the, the territorial or the landed economy and the maritime economy, which I think is, is missing from this. Historically, there was a global economy that was where there were free, free contracts and there were double-ledger accounting and there was credit um, and, and where enormous speculative uh, returns could be made. Um, but that never penetrated into the lives of people who were protected through forms of status um, and through, and through um, political status as, as well as things like interest rate caps. So there was the adventuring economy there was with an, gold yeah. and silver circulating around the and, world. And, and, the, and the great big wall that was built, the biggest wall in Europe that was built around the city of London, was very much to to keep the locals out and to orientate it towards uh, what what became the the Atlantic trade. Uh, and then and then there is a domestic economy. Now, what happened under under Thatcher? What happened um, in the last thirty? 30 years is there's been no distinction between productive and predatory capital. There's been no dis distinction between um, domestic and, and maritime trade. Everything is freely contracted. Everything is, is, mm. is globalised. And a lot of people would say that's how the, that's how the world's got richer. That. Well, what, what we've experienced is an enormous ex explosion of what Detlev talks about, which is enormous explosion of debt, an enormous explosion of personal debt, um, which is then um, knocked on into the into public day an, an erosion of value i mean if if you look i mean one of the one of the most uh, troubling statistics for me is that between ninety seven and two thousand and seven of the one point four trillion invested in the british economy eighty one percent was in financial products and mortgages there wasn 't the investment in businesses now why was that that was because the rate of returns in the financial sector outside productive economy were much much higher now they turned out to be delusory they turned out to be speculative they turned out to be volatile which turned the banking sector into the city into the greatest welfare dependent um, we've ever seen um, that's that's what happened but what is absent I feel is the power of money is the power of the banks is that, that it, it's not the case so I mean Detlev's telling a story where the where the poor innocent um, self-interested bankers are being corrupted by the politicians. It's by far the other way, is that the politicians are much more owned by the bankers and, and they've, pursued this they, they've, they've pursued this debt strategy, this explosion of debt. So I'm completely um, with you, but what's been eroded is any sense of value, 
any sense of virtue, any sense of vocation, any sense of so, skill in the economy. So what we have is this endless explosion of debt without the capacity to generate productive value. And, and that's why I think that we're in a really interesting space now, because we've got to deal very much with with the idea that there is such a thing as value, there is such a thing as the labour theory of value. This is why I think that the labour tradition is, is, is superior. So uh, la- last week we had uh, Fintan O'Toole of the Irish Times mm-hmm. describing the so-called austerity and the terrible effects of that in Ireland. And uh, quite a few people emailed into the programme or texted into the programme afterwards to say, why is it then that Germany is in such a powerful position that the Irish um, economy is discussed in the Bundestag ahead of it being discussed in the Doyle uh, a lot of the time? Is that because the German economy followed a different route? Uh, Very much so. So so just... uh a brief reflection on on the German economy because we tend to think and what the Irish would experience or the Greek would experience is it, the German economy has got four legs to the table. One of them is fiscal conservatism, is a constraint on the on the expansion of, of and a very strong stress on local bank, on landers banks, and on, on and the and on that. But the other three legs are it's a vocational economy. You cannot become a cab driver, a hairdresser, an electrician, a plumber, a carpenter without having gone through the apprenticeship system, and that is recognised in the internal governance of the firm. So it's, it's better trained. So there, there, there are genuine traditional skills that have a, have a status in the economy. It is not a contractual economy, it's a status economy, is one way of putting it. The other, one, the other two are the representation of the workforce in the corporate strategy of the firm. So there is not just the short term. So what we've had, I mean, Angela, this is the crucial thing, is the unaccountability of the money managers. This is the, is the, is the money managers and the people in control of assets gave themselves enormous pay, um, paid, paid themselves enormous amounts of money in companies. If you look at the comparison between Britain and Germany, um, what you had in Britain was job losses and pay rises for, for management. I'm, just, but I'm, I'm going to come back to your other leg in a second. Because oh, no, the ta- right. table's toppling. Um, OK, so, quickly. <laughs> so, so, so you have the, the representation of the workforce, and then you have a form of local banks, which is absolutely vital, where you're not allowed to lend outside the county line. So there's a genuine relationship with the development of long-term productive capital. Local wealth, and, 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 that, and that is why and they so have the four legs of the table, productive yeah, so, and engineering traditions. And, so and, uh, so oh. the incredible result of all of this is it turns out that the labour theory of value has been vindicated, that it's not exclusively capital that gives value to things or technology, but the generation of the technology is tied up to the skills of the workforce. Everybody wants to jump <laughs> in on this. OK, well, let's start with Philip. Well, Winston Churchill had this wonderful phrase that he'd rather see finance less proud and industry more content. And Angela's quite right. Banking is a vital function of a modern economy. But we have got, we did get to the stage where it appeared to be the only thing that people leaving university wanted to do. That the best of the brightest went entirely in Britain into trading assets. And we, we need to shift back so that the best and brightest want to do other things. Uh, and of course, the as Morris was saying, the sort of built-in interest that banks can create means that, you know, governments tend to worry about propping them up. They end up funding politicians and, and that's where you get this mm. unfortunate sort of complex. And, and, and Morris has a point, doesn't he, Angela, that, that um, the uh, one of the things that's happened at the higher levels of finance uh, capitalism, as he would describe it, banking and so on, is that there have been an awful lot of people with no one looking over their shoulder for too long. 
Well, that's partly correct, although, of course, it is a very heavily regulated industry, so you might say nobody's been looking over the shoulder in the right sort of way in the right sort of places, and that's one of the reasons why rethinking regulation is all part of uh, uh, the changes that are taking place today. But it's it's all a, a lot broader than that. It's, it's, very, it's a bit too simplistic to say, well, the problem is because everybody went into the banking industry. The problem is because banking industry was allowed to grow. I mean, <clears throat> I sadly am um, long enough in the tooth to have seen several recessions. And when I went through university and came out of university end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s, people didn't go into engineering. They didn't go into manufacturing in the sort of numbers that we needed. There was a broad cultural uh, thing here in the UK which did not put manufacturing industry in the same place as, as professions and professions were then at the top of the pile and so I do actually buy this argument that there is a real need to have a very broad based set of policies about different parts of the economy but in doing that we don't want to uh, detract from what is a world leading industry and that is banking financial services. Maurice Glassman. Oh, there's, there's, there's no suggestion um, that that would be the case. But I think one of the important things we've got to learn is that accountability is far too important to be left to accountants. So this is why there has to be some expert internal understanding um, and tied to interests that level, I think. And that's why the workforce representation is so vital. And this is going to be the, the motor of the genuine generation of value and some balance of interest in firms. Debt left shifter. Yeah, just, I mean, uh, talking about Germany here, as, as a German, I have to say I'm fairly, fairly concerned about my, you know, home country. I, I, I don't see it in such a, such a positive light. I think part of what we see is now that some of the other Europe, European countries are struggling so much that sort of Germany stands out a little bit. But if you look at Germany right now, for example, Germany has, is suffering from many of the same problems. It is, it does have a welfare state. It cannot afford itself any longer. It, Germany herself is violating now all the rules it laid down at the start of EMU. You uh, herself and enforce on other countries like the Maastricht criteria. Uh, so we see Germany struggling from the same problems. But I think historically Germany has done very well after the Second World War. And I think that is, if anything, a point again for hard money. I mean, think about it. The Deutschmark was, of all the paper currencies, based on uh, Erhardt's kind of was very, a hard currency. Tough. And that encourages savings. It is not, you know, quick money creation. It doesn't uh, uh, fund you know, these asset bubbles. It, 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 uh, and any economy is based on savings. Saving cap, true capital uh, accumulation and entrepreneurship, and that's what we've seen in in, in Germany. But how we how we tell this story is vital. Agreed about the hard money, but also you've got to give stress to the to the power of the workforce in the firm, which has which has led to far um, smaller wage differentials and also a balance of interest and a, a negotiation and the importance of vocation of the substantive economy. The problem with the Austrian school, I think, is that. Uh, at one level, on the macro level, it's got a very good point, but it doesn't conceptualise the internal organisation of firms. Final thought. Oh, a final thought is that these battles are going to be the ones that determine politics for the next 10 or 15 years. We haven't just made promises to creditors. We made promises to voters in the forms of pensions and benefits that we may not be able to afford. And so these promises are going to be broken one way or another, and that's, that's what's going to determine politics. Angela. And I think that that's a critical point because looking at history is 
it's very useful. But actually, the, the focus has now got to be is on the future. The focus has got to be on growth. The focus has got to be on the sorts of actions that need to be taken to promote that growth. And unfortunately, that difficult thing, that difficult piece, is the bit that too often gets put to one side. Nice lesson. And I completely agree with Philip, but we're all in this together in a more radical way than George Osborne could ever possibly imagine. <laughs> all right, that was the Labour beer. Morris Glassman there. Angela Knight, Chief Executive of the British Bankers Association, was also with me today. Detlef Schlichter's book, Paper Money Collapse, and Philip Coggan's Paper Promises, Money, Debt and the New World Order, are both out now. Next week, Justice, Punishment and Liberty, with John Podmore, Simon Stevens, the playwright, and Shami Chakrabarty. But for now, thank you and goodbye. Thank you for listening to this Radio 4 podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you might like to try others like it, such as In Our Time or Thinking Aloud, both of which are also available from the Radio 4 website.